This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. We're going to do uh, this morning, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We're kicking off a brand new verse-by-verse study of the book of Philippians entitled Magnify Jesus. We started at the beginning of 2020, a series uh, called Magnify Jesus, where we took a look at how practically uh, we can make Jesus look good in our lives. We talked talk about practical Christian living through that. Uh, we're going to, to switch gears in that series and now just go verse-by-verse through the book of Philippians. And so... If you've never read through the book of Philippians, I'd encourage you to do that this week. Uh, probably wouldn't take you more than 15, 20 minutes to read through it. It's a really short book, uh, and it's an easy read, and so I'd encourage you to, to read through that. We'll kind of uh, set the stage and lay some foundation and put some context with it uh, together today. Uh, if you want to download the Hui Kala app, if you don't have it already, there's a button where you can click on the podcast and then click on today's message. You can actually download the notes for today's message or uh, follow along on your, your phone or your iPad or whatever you have. Uh, that's a good way that you can take notes. Uh, I usually try to email out the notes uh, throughout the week too if you want to print those out and bring them in. Uh, currently during this time, we don't have any uh, bulletins or anything along those lines to hand out at this time. So if you want to follow along with that uh, on your device, you're more than welcome to do that. Or just bring a pen and paper. Take really good notes. Whatever you do, uh, just stay connected with this. Philippians uh, chapter 1 is where we find ourselves today. Really just two verses in today's message. And sometimes people um, incorrectly believe that the number of verses just determines the length of the message. The two are not correlated in any way whatsoever. So if you're thinking like, oh, only two verses, we'll get out of here early. Don't hold your breath. Uh, so uh, I would do you a disservice if I didn't give you a, a full context from the Bible. So I want to do you a favor today and help you out with that. So uh, Philippians chapter 1 is where we find ourselves today. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The authorship of the book of Philippians has rarely ever been disputed. Paul tells us from the very beginning, Paul is writing this with Timothy, uh, and so Paul, the author of this particular book here. Paul's responsible for at least 13 books of the New Testament as we know it. Uh, Paul wrote the book of Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st uh, and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, uh, and more than likely the book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews doesn't list an author. Its writing style is very Paul-ish. Uh, the things that he addresses are things that Paul addresses elsewhere. Uh, it's written by a Jew to Jews, and so uh, from that aspect, uh, a lot of the writing style seems very Paul-like. And so most theologians, and I would agree with them, um, would say that the book of Hebrews would be authored by Paul, although he doesn't actually sign his name to that particular letter. As Paul writes, uh, nine of the letters that he writes, uh, we sometimes refer to these as epistles. The word epistle is just a fancy word for letter. And so nine of these letters that Paul writes, he writes to local New Testament churches. And so as he writes the book of Romans, he's writing to the church at Rome. As he writes to the church at Corinth, he's writing to the church at Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, the church at Thessalonica, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now, the book of Galatians is a little bit different because it's written to more of a group of churches as opposed to the church at Galatia. It's written to churches at Galatia. There were five or so uh, churches there that Paul was known to have um, a relationship with. And so he writes to the churches at Galatia. Three of the letters he writes are to local church pastors, 
First uh, and Second Timothy were written to Timothy, who was a young pastor, and the book of Titus was written to the uh, young pastor by the name of Titus uh, as well. So we see 12 of his writings for sure deal specifically with the local New Testament church. Now we say that to draw attention to the fact that Jesus makes a big deal of the, the New Testament church because he gave himself for it. The book of Acts really kicks off the New Testament after the Gospels with the story of the local church. Nine letters are written to local churches. Three letters are written to local church pastors. If you can't get the idea, here's the thing. God's really interested in the local New Testament church. It's a big deal. Again, some Christians can sometimes see the church as a kind of a bolt-on to Christianity. Well, I've got my faith, and maybe I'll find a church. But when you look at the Bible, the church is the central location that we all connect to for our Christian growth, and we go from there and change the world. That's the idea behind the local New Testament church. Now, that's 12 of the letters, three written to local church pastors, nine written to local churches. What about the 13th? Is the book of Philemon. It's a really, really interesting book that Paul writes to a friend of his by the name of Philemon. And Philemon was uh, uh, kind of a businessman, if you will, and one of his slaves had ran away, a man by the name of Onesimus. And this slave had met Paul, and Paul had led Onesimus to Christ, and they became very, very close. And Paul told Onesimus, you need to go back and make things right with Philemon. And as you can imagine, a runaway slave going back to his slave owner Paul goes, I think things will be different this time. And Paul wrote a letter to Philemon. He says, hey, Onesimus is coming back this time, but he's not coming back as your slave. He's coming back as your brother in Christ. Uh, He's very useful to me, and I know he'll be useful to you for the sake of the gospel. And so it's a personal letter. You say, well, why would that be in the Bible? Because it teaches us so much about our relationship with Christ and our relationship with fellow Christians as well. Phenomenal, phenomenal read. If you ever get a chance to read through the book of Philemon, very, very short book. But as Paul writes here uh, to the church at Philippi, it's a unique book in the writing of Paul because the church of Philippi was started by Paul at the beginning of his second missionary journey. Now again, just to give you a little bit of a context here, uh, the church at Jerusalem was the first church that got started the day of Pentecost. Peter preached, uh, 3,000 people saved, baptized, added to the church every single day after that. They met for Bible study and prayer and encouragement and they had meals together. Uh, People were baptized. They took the Lord's Supper together. And this is every single day people were being saved and added to this church. Persecution came to the church at Jerusalem, and then believers began to scatter into outlying cities. And as they began to scatter, they began to gather together every single day and study the word and pray. And these small churches started cropping up all over the place. The apostle Paul was one of the persecutors of the church. At the time, he was known as Saul. And he would go and he would put Christians in prison. And the Bible says uh, that he was consenting to the death of Stephen. He stood by and held the coats of the other people while they put Stephen to death. And he was a hater of the church. But one day on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus and he was saved. Once he was saved, then he got plugged in with a a group of believers. And then we find in Acts chapter 13, Paul uh, is worshiping Jesus at a church in Antioch. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit began to talk to Paul and a friend by the name of Barnabas. And says, hey guys, I want you to leave the church here in Antioch, and I want you to go out, start new churches, and begin to spread the gospel. Acts chapter 13, we find the very first ever what we refer to as missionary journey. Now the term missionary sometimes has gotten a little bit confused and muddled in our society today, but a missionary is one who leaves their home for the sake of the mission. And we as Bible-believing Christians know that the, the mission is the great commission to go, win, baptize, and teach. 
And so Paul and Barnabas picked up from their home for the purpose of fulfilling the mission. Now, sometimes people get the term missionary when they go over to a different country to maybe dig wells or to plant rice or to, you know, give vaccinations to kids in villages and things like that. And while that term gets applied to that, they're, if they're not a part of the mission, they're not necessarily, by definition, missionaries. Now, we have folks that we support from our church that, that went over to Papua New Guinea as a medical missionary. They went there with medical supplies to provide medical care for the sake, for the purpose of getting the gospel to those folks. We definitely agree with that, and those are missionaries in the true sense of the word. But Paul and Barnabas were the very first ever missionaries, the first people to leave their home for the sake of spreading the gospel. And they leave on their first missionary journey, and they go to different cities and plant churches and lead people to Christ and get people uh, gathering together on a regular basis, and they leave and go, go to the next place. The Bible says that they then came back to the church at Antioch and began to, to share with the church at Antioch all the places they had been, the people they had seen, the folks they had led to Christ, the churches that they had started, and they kind of got re-geared to go out a second time. And so when Paul and Barnabas go out for their second leg of their journey, the Bible says in Acts chapter 16, verse number 9, and a vision appeared unto Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathered that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And so Paul and Barnabas, they're getting ready to go out on their second leg of the journey and getting ready to travel. Now, up to this point, they've been primarily in the Middle Eastern area, uh, in the uh, area of uh, Jerusalem, the outlying areas around there. Now, they're getting ready to go, and Paul sees a vision in the night of a man who, from Macedonia who says, hey, come over and give us a hand. Now, Macedonia, the city of Philippi, would be in what's modern-day Greece, and so uh, you, you'd be going west from the Middle East where they are over western uh, into Europe. And so this was Paul's first ever venture into European soil for the purpose of preaching the gospel. Now, this is a great place to pause as well and to say that Paul received a vision in the night of a man in Macedonia who says, come over and help us. And he said, I felt like God was calling us to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. I want to be ridiculously clear at this point of the juncture of the story. God speaks to you and I through his word by his Holy Spirit, period. We don't see visions, we don't see dreams, we don't interpret dreams. Uh, we've had people call our church before and say, is there a pastor on staff that can interpret my dreams? Uh, absolutely not, because we don't believe God speaks that way. Uh, now, again, we're not going to get into all the, the psychoanalytics of dreams and things like that, why we have them and the different phases of sleep. That's not the point. The point is God doesn't speak to us through dreams and visions. I've had guys before who said, well, I had a dream that I left my wife and my family and I was really happy for the first time in my life. I don't care what your dream says. I know what God's word says. And so if you're a child of God, God's given inside of you the Holy Spirit and he's given you his word and the two of those work together to guide you into truth, the Bible says. So we don't find truth in visions, dreams, and, and miracles and wonders and signs and things like that. We find truth always explicitly through God's word. But at this time, Paul did not have a completed copy of God's word. Paul was in the process of even penning the words of Scripture for you and I by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul didn't have the Scripture to guide him, so God gave him a vision to guide him and says, come over and help us in Macedonia. Now, the city of Philippi was named after a man by the name of Philip of Macedon, who happened to be the father of Alexander the Great. It was a uh, medium-sized city. It wasn't a large city like the city of Thessalonica might have been, but it was a large-ish city. And because it was in Europe, it had a very small Jewish population. Uh, historians tell us that there was a Jewish synagogue inside Philippi. 
And so he's going primarily to non-Jews for the purpose of preaching the gospel. And Paul felt called to Gentile or non-Jew folks to, for the purpose of spreading the gospel. While he was there, the very first uh, person that he would lead to Christ was a young woman by the name of Lydia. Uh, the Bible says that Lydia had her own business where she sold uh, purple garments and purple linen and things like that. And she, the Bible says that she was a God-fearer before she got saved, which means she was ascribing to the God of the Bible and seeking to know more about him and held God in a level of respect. And Paul had the opportunity to lead her to Christ and then after that be baptized. Also, if you've ever, ever had the opportunity to read through the book of Acts, if you haven't, you should. It's a, it's a page turner for sure. You read through there, you'll find also that there was a girl who was possessed by demons who would tell fortunes for people and was involved in witchcraft. And Paul cast a demon out of her. And as a result of that, uh, her... Uh, Owners got very upset about that because they lost their source of income because he cast out this demon. That happened at Philippi. Do you remember a story that Paul and Silas were thrown in prison and they began to pray and sing and praise God in the middle of the night and that the, uh, the doors of the jail burst open and the jailer comes out and he's all upset and bent out of shape. He's about to take his own life because, man, there's been a prison break at night and Paul says, hey, man, don't take your life. We're all still here. And begins to share with him Jesus. And that Philippian jailer accepted Christ as Savior and ended up being baptized. And the Bible says that Philippian jailer's household came to faith in Christ as well. Where did that happen? It happened in the city of Philippi. This is a group of believers that Paul had gathered together. He started a church there. A group of believers that would gather together every single uh, Sunday for the purpose of worshiping Jesus and carrying out the gospel and the Great Commission. And these people were near and dear to Paul's heart. And this is the very first church that Paul ever started on uh, European soil. About 50 AD or so is when this forming of the church took place, and then about 10 years later, Paul would write the letter to the church at Philippi. About 10 years after the initial start of it, about 61 AD or so is when this letter was written. Now, the book of Philippians was written from prison. And when you and I think of prison, we think of like a cell block and uh, metal doors and only being elite three times a day and going into a cafeteria and things along those lines. This wasn't that type of prison for Paul. Uh, Paul was not in prison for punishment. Paul was actually in prison awaiting trial. Uh, so you can think of it more of a house arrest as opposed to a, a prison proper. But nevertheless, Paul didn't have his freedom and would never have his freedom again from this point forward. Uh, he was in prison for preaching the gospel. And because of that, he uh, was arrested by uh, Jewish courts. And then he appealed to Rome, being a Roman citizen, and asked him basically his, his uh, case to be taken to Caesar. Think of it today as like, hey, I want my uh, case to be heard by the Supreme Court. And I said, well, you can't just do that right away. And so they held him uh, in prison as a result of it. And so as Paul writes the letter to the church at Philippi, he writes from prison. Now, we don't know exactly where Paul was held in prison. Most Bible scholars believe he was uh, writing this from Rome itself. Uh, we know that Paul was also um, in prison in uh, Caesarea uh, as well. And then there was also the, uh, uh, the idea that he might have been in, uh, in bondage in Ephesus as well. We don't really for sure. But the place that he writes it isn't necessarily important to, but then to know that he wrote it from prison. Some Bible scholars that believe that the book of Ephesians, which was also written in prison and sometimes referred to as part of the prison epistles or prison letters. The book of Ephesians, chapter 6, he writes about the armor of God and the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Some folks believe that Paul, as he sat in his uh, prison room, looked over to the Roman guard and began to sketch out the different parts of his the Roman's armor and began to place that how it relates to the Christian's life as well. We don't know that. It's a 
cool story to tell, but the scripture doesn't tell us that explicitly. But it's a neat idea that here's a guy in prison and begins thinking about other people and how he can be an encouragement to them as well. Philippians, though, is a letter about joy in Jesus. As Paul writes letters to other churches, uh, they're, they're very unique. Uh, every letter has a purpose. Every letter has its own tone that Paul writes in. For example, when he writes to the church at Corinth, uh, he started the church at Corinth with uh, several other co-workers, actually, believe it or not. He started the church at Corinth and uh, pastored it for about 18 months and then left. And when he left, man, everything fell apart after that. And so he writes him a letter and says, hey, guys, uh, just wanted to say, hey, check in with you, see how things are going. Now, I heard some things that I'm very disappointed by. He begins to, to line out all the things that were really bad. The, the church at Corinth was the most carnal, biblical church in all of biblical history. And they, had, they were a mess. Uh, they had incest taking place, other types of sexual immorality, uh, drunkenness, uh, a lot of division, disunity, uh, backbiting, arguing, fighting in the church. Uh, Christians were taking other Christians to, to court and suing them and uh, really making a mockery, the testimony of Christ. And it was bad, bad, bad. But Paul writes a letter and says, brethren, get it together. Come on, we can do this. The church at Thessalonica had been struggling with a lot of the death of Christians and persecution that had come. And Paul writes them a letter saying, hey, guys, don't worry. This is not the end. Let us not sorrow like those who sorrow with no hope. We'll see them again. We'll see Christ again. Encourage one another with the idea that this is not the end. It's only the beginning of eternal life. A lot of encouragement that he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. Sometimes he would write to correct false doctrine. And Paul did not have a stomach for false doctrine. He wrote to the churches at Galatia, these group of five or so churches uh, that were struggling with the doctrine uh, of Jesus Christ being enough. That Christ can pay for all of our sins. We don't have to keep the law. And Paul minces no words with him. Hey, guys, it's Paul. I'm really disappointed in you. There's no word of encouragement. There's no, hey, just want to let you know I'm praying for you and thinking about you. Here's some thoughts. He says, no. But like verse six in his letter to the churches at Galatia, he was like, I am so upset that you were so quickly removed from the true gospel and following a false gospel. I think you were better than that. It's just scathing rebuke from beginning to end. The book of Galatians. The letter to the church at Philippi doesn't contain a sharp rebuke. Uh, There's no harsh correction. There's no false. By the time Paul writes 2 Corinthians, which was actually the fourth letter to the church at Corinth, by the time he writes 2 Corinthians, he's basically saying, hey, you got false teachers in your church, you need to get them out with a quickness. No false teachers at the church at Philippi. No negligence and rebelliousness to sin here. No bad doctrine. Just a letter of joy. Paul's writing to friends who have been an encourager to him in the work of the gospel and who he wants to encourage even further in the work of the gospel. Paul, as he writes this letter of joy in Jesus, also he's all about Jesus as he writes it. It's counted 51 times in 104 verses, the words Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, things like that, uh, in only 104 verses, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, 104 verses, 51 times the words appear in this letter. So over and over again, it's about Jesus. If you read through chapter number one, it's all over and over again about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. And Paul, as he writes this letter, it's a letter of joy, but not just joy, it's joy in Jesus. Now it's important that as we look at this letter that is a letter of joy in Jesus, it's important to understand exactly what we're talking about. Joy is a 
signifies a feeling of happiness that's based on spiritual realities. Joy comes not from my circumstances being what I want them to be. Joy doesn't come because everything's going my way. That would be happiness. Happiness doesn't last. Happiness is that feeling that you get when you get a new car or a new car to you. You've ever been there before? We've, our family's never bought a new car, but every new car to us, we've always had to find a reason the first day that we have it to take it out for another drive. I think, I think I need to go to the drive-thru somewhere. I think you need to sit in and listen to the radio for a little bit. I'm gonna, uh, my wife loves to take it to Target to break it in uh, to see how it's going to be on the multiple trucks per week to Target. Uh, we always find a reason to drive it because it's fun, right, driving a new car. There's been times where we bought cars that to us were so nice that we didn't want to get them messed up. So we tell the kids, hey, kids, this new car that we have, we're never going to eat in this car, ever. This is a special car. It's sacred. It's holy. The Lord's given it to us. There will be no food in this car whatsoever. If you're hungry, we'll stop, and you can stand outside the car and eat. And when you're finished, you can sit back in the car. You laugh because you know it's true. And then what? Six weeks in, you got milkshakes all over the back end of the back floorboard. And, you know, there's, I don't know how kids get ketchup stains on the roof of the car, right? But somehow they get them there. And all that goes out the window. And while we used to park down at the end at Walmart in the parking lot so we didn't get door dinged, now we're parking right beside the carts where you know you're going to get dinged because it's just, it's a car at that point, right? And kind of the fun of it wears off after a minute. It's not necessarily fun anymore. And so we seek happiness in other areas. Maybe this uh, you know, you know, new, new college degree would give me the happiness that I seek and kind of put me on a good trajectory in life. And I'm going to seek after this degree. And you get about six weeks into school and you begin to look at the syllabus and all the assignments that you have and things that are coming up and required reading that you have and all the money that's going out. And you're like, this is not fun anymore. This, the fun of this has worn off. And happiness like that doesn't last. Maybe it's a new outfit. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a new place to live. Maybe it's something else that we think, this is going to be it for me. This is going to provide happiness. Please understand this. Happiness always has an expiration date. It's generally really short, too. It doesn't last. And if we're seeking happiness in life, we're constantly going to be clawing for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. This is why so many marriages fail, because they seek happiness. I just want to be happy. I can't tell you how many times I've had a person sit across from me in a marriage counseling session, and they say this question, Pastor, don't I deserve to be happy? When do I get to be happy? When do I get to have what I want? And the answer to that question is the day that you said I do, you put yourself on the back burner forever. And if somebody didn't explain it to you, I'm sorry. I'm here to explain it to you that way. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness doesn't last. But joy, joy is different than happiness. Joy isn't based on my material circumstances. Joy isn't based on how much money is in my bank account. Joy is not based upon the things that are happening around me. Joy is based on spiritual realities. I can have joy because I know that I was once lost in sin. The Bible says that we are all sinners. We've all broken God's law. To sin is to mean to miss the mark. If God has a standard of excellence, you and I fall short, not most of the time, but almost every time. And because of that, I've sinned and you've sinned, and and the Bible says that we're born into this world as sinners, we're born into sin, that we receive our sin nature from our father, and so if you have a dad and you were born into this world, which you do, you are automatically a sinner. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
And that's problematic for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Bible says that because of that, we're born into this world spiritually dead. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and that our spirit was born dead, but physically alive. And if you die in your sin, and you are born spiritually dead, and you die spiritually dead, the Bible says that after your physical death comes a spiritual death. And the wages of your sin is death. Just like you, get, you work a job and you get a wage and earning statement at the end of the week saying what you've earned for the time that you put in. What you've earned as a result of your sin, the wages of your sin, the Bible says is death, spiritual death, which means separation from God forever in a real place called hell that burns with real fire for all of eternity and there's no getting out. That's what I deserve because of my sin. That's what you deserve as a result of your sin. But God loves you. God loves me. Why? I don't know. Because he's God. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. That death that I deserve, gone. Jesus came to pay the price for me. You see, God says, somebody's got to pay for your sin. Somebody has to die. And Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll take the penalty. I'll take the consequences. And Jesus went to the cross and he suffered and bled and died for one purpose, to pay for my sin and to pay for yours. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died in my place to pay for my sin so that I don't have to see hell so I don't have to see the consequences of my sin, so that I can be forgiven. But, and here's the most important statement in the entire world, you must believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and repent of your sin to be saved. Everybody has to make that decision for themselves. I wish I could make it for you. I would do it for the entire world. But it's a personal decision that you have to make. There must be a point in time in your life where you recognize I have sinned against God, I deserve God's wrath and judgment, and I need forgiveness, I need to be saved. And I cry out to God, and I say, God, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and God, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin today and to save me. If you've done that, the Bible says you've been saved or born again. If you've never done that before, the Bible says you have not been saved or born again, and that's a problem You see, if you've never been saved or born again, the Bible says in John 3, 3, Jesus saith unto Nicodemus, a very religious man who knew a lot about God and knew a lot about the Bible, he says, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You can't go to heaven without being saved. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John says later in John chapter three, he that hath the son, Jesus, hath life, everlasting life. But he that hath not the son hath not life. And here's the heavy part. The wrath of God abides on him. Friend, if there's never been a day in your life where you've been saved or born again, know this, the consequences of your sin are 100% on your shoulders. The moment that you die, God's punishment will be poured out on you for all of eternity. I don't want that, and trust me, you don't either. So today, you can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. 
All you have to do is say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I'm willing to leave my sin behind and follow after Jesus. Not that you're going to be perfect from here on out, but you're willing to turn from a life of sin where you think what you do is okay, and you're willing to turn to Jesus. And if you'll do that, he will save you in a glorious way. I was saved when I was nine years old. I was brought up in church my whole life, but it was nine where I realized my need for Jesus, and I confessed my sin, and Jesus saved me. I haven't lived a perfectly sinless life since nine lived a perfectly sinless life since nine o'clock yesterday morning. But I am forgiven child of God now. And the Bible says that you are now adopted into the family of God and you're a child of God and he's your father. And the Bible says there's nothing you can do to lose that gift of eternal life. And you know what that gives you? That gives us joy. Because my joy isn't based on my physical circumstances. It's based on spiritual realities. And so while I might not be at the place that I thought I would be at in my life financially, I don't worry about that because I know that I'm a child of God and when this life is over, I'm going to heaven. I'm not concerned with the fact that I might contract a life-threatening illness and possibly die. That really doesn't cause me to lose sleep at night. You know why? Because I know that this life is temporary and my number's coming up one day. And it doesn't matter if it's next week or 50 years from now. I know that when my number comes up here on this earth and it's lights out for me, I'm gonna be in heaven with Jesus for all of eternity. And that brings me joy. I don't have fear of death. Now, I'm not trying to die. I don't walk on the crosswalk on a red hand. I don't ride around without my seatbelt on. I don't take unnecessary risks. I'm not trying to die, but I have no fear of death. You know why? Because I have joy. And here's the great news, that while when I die and I'm gone, while my wife and children might be sad, they can have joy knowing that I am with the Father in heaven and they can have joy knowing that we'll be reunited one day because of what Jesus has done. And so for Christians, even joy in the, can be found in the death of other Christians because joys are based on our circumstances and our situations, based on spiritual realities. There's been people in our church through all of this that have lost their jobs and have maintained excellent attitudes and just had ridiculous amounts of joy. Why? because they weren't happy because they had money in their bank account. They weren't happy because they went 40 hours a week and punched a clock somewhere. They're happy because they know Jesus and Jesus loves them and they love him. That's where joy comes from. And here's the, the great thing about joy. Joy is readily available to every Christian, but joy cannot be manufactured. Joy is not dependent on our circumstances, but joy is dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't have joy because everything in my life is working out exactly as I had it planned. Truthfully, that's just not the case. I don't have joy because I have no problems in this world. That's not the case at all. I got plenty of problems. I don't have joy because X, Y, or Z. The Bible says that if you have joy, it's because you have the Holy Spirit. Now, that begs the question. If joy comes from the Holy Spirit, how do you get the Holy Spirit? Glad you asked. Be saved. The day that you were saved or born again, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And if you're a Christian, you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've repented of your sins, you've been born again and saved, forgiven. The Bible says that moment, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. And the Holy Spirit is God. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit make up the Godhead or the Trinity as we sometimes refer to it. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. If you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. If you're taking notes this morning, I recommend that you do right out to this side here, Galatians 5. <coughs> now, some folks have errantly said if you have the Holy Spirit at work in your life, you're going to be able to do supernatural things. You're going to be able to speak in an unknown language to you. You're going to be able to perform signs and miracles and wonders, and you're going to be able to you know, pray for the one pepperoni pizza you have on your table and turn it into five pepperoni pizzas. You'll be able to lay your hands on somebody and see the future for them. All that is junk. You know what Galatians chapter 5 says happens when the Holy Spirit gets all up in you and fills you? What does the Holy Spirit produce inside of you? Galatians 5, 22 says, love and joy. That's the first two. Now it goes on to say nine things that the Holy Spirit will make in us. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit's at work inside of me. And I don't believe, sometimes people listen, now the fruit of the Holy Spirit is in no particular order, love, joy, peace. No, no, no. God is never random, ever. God always does things with order and purpose. And when he lists the fruit of the Spirit, when Paul writes that letter to the church at Corinth, I don't think he was sitting there going, uh, should I do love before joy, joy before love? No, he wrote it, and the Holy Spirit guided him, and the very first one it says is love. Love is produced when the Holy Spirit's at work in my life. And the second thing is joy. And the third thing is peace. And the fourth thing is long-suffering. And friend, if you don't have those things in your life, let me just tell you, it's because the work of the Holy Spirit is hindered inside of you. How does that happen? Well, the Bible also tells us in Galatians 5. Again, this is a, a great opportunity to read through what the Bible says. Galatians 5 says, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. <laughs> so if you're fulfilling the lust of your flesh and continuing in sin, then that's going to hinder the fruit production of the Holy Spirit. I'm not a farmer, but I grew up in Kentucky and I knew a lot of farmers and soybean and corn and a lot of tobaccos grown in, in uh, Kentucky. And I know these farmers, they don't just throw out a bunch of seed and then come back in a few months to check on it and see if it's ready to harvest. No, they're out there every single day working the fields. What do they do? They're putting out herbicide to make sure that there's no weeds. They're putting out pesticides to make sure that there's no bugs that will do what? Spoil the fruit production. And Christian, if you don't have joy in your life, you need to ask the question, what is spoiling your fruit production? Because the Holy Spirit wants to create love and joy in your life. And if you don't have it, something's hindering fruit production. And again, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm just a pastor who happens to know the Bible and is a really good friend. But what I found in the majority of the counseling sessions that I've had with folks providing biblical counsel is your joy is generally hindered by sin in your life. Because sin steals your joy. But know this, joy is also produced by the Holy Spirit. You can't manufacture it, you can't fake it, 
I know people who say, oh, no, this guy at work, he's not a Christian. He's just happy all the time. Again, happiness is different than joy. Joy is the feeling of happiness based on spiritual realities. And when the Holy Spirit's at work in my life, I can have joy. And if I'm not having joy, I need to ask myself why, because God wants to create joy in me. If I don't have love, and again, love is not an emotion or a feeling. Love is a choice of action. It's a course of action. It's things that I do. It's a mindset that I adopt. I choose to put you before me. That's love. If I don't have that, 1 Corinthians 13 tells me I'm wasting my time. So if I don't have love and joy, I need to ask myself, why? What's hindering the fruit production in my life? And again, this is an important place to pull over to and say that if you're not a Christian, you cannot have joy because joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love is a result of the Holy Spirit. And again, you say, I know people that are loving that aren't Christians. That's not true love. It's not Christ-like love because you and I can only love like Jesus. Others first, sacrificial serving love if the Holy Spirit's at work in our life. That's the only way. And so, Christian, you have love and joy. If not, the Holy Spirit's not working the way that he wants to, and he wants to produce that inside of you. As we look at Philippians chapter 1, it's important to note in verse, verse number 1, joy is found in knowing who I am in Jesus. You're going to be disappointed when you think that you're this great person and you find out that you're not. Talking with our guys these last few days, and I said we often have an inflated sense of self-worth. <laughs> Something breaks at work. It wasn't my fault. It couldn't be my fault. I know I did it right. It must be somebody else. And when we talk about joy, joy comes from recognizing who I am in Jesus Christ. It comes from recognizing I don't have to be what the world wants me to be. I don't have to meet the standard of success that the world has. I just need to meet God's standard of success. That's it. That's easy. And joy comes from knowing who I am in Jesus. If you take a look at the opening words of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, what's the next word there? Servants. Servants. Paul doesn't write and go, hey, Church of Philippi, it's Paul, what's up? Former pastor, church planning pastor. I'm sure you've heard of me from all of my multiple exploits throughout the book of Acts. You have read the book of Acts, right? That was me, Paul. Used to be Saul, rode to Damascus, totally awesome, right? Became an apostle born out of due time. Like, I didn't get to hook up with the original apostles. I just got like an apostle in my own category, right? I mean, I wrote most of the New Testament. You probably read some of my letters. You might be familiar. Is that what he said? No, no, no. Paul and Timothy, servants. He doesn't list any of his credentials. Hey, you might remember me when. Hey, guys, you remember when we cast out that demon girl and that guy got all mad at us? No, he didn't. Paul and Timotheus, Servants. And a little bit gets lost in translation from the original Greek language into the, uh, the English here. And again, I don't believe you have to be a Greek scholar to get everything out of the Bible. And I don't believe you have to read the original Greek language to be able to understand the Bible. But the word that's used here for the word servant is the word doulos in the Greek. And that word means a bond slave. It's different than just having somebody who shines your shoes for you like a, we would think of as a servant. 
It's different when we think of it as a, like a hired servant in our house where we uh, pay them X amount of dollars per, per month and maybe they do our house cleaning for us or maybe they uh, do our laundry for us. Not a servant like that. Paul says we are, a, we are bond slaves to Christ. And when you were a bond slave, you were bought for a price for the duration of your lifetime. It wasn't like, oh, you get to work for, uh, you know, six years and then you're free after the seventh. It wasn't indentured service. This was lifelong service committed to. And bond slaves didn't have any rights of their own. They couldn't say, well, that's a little bit hard. That's not really my wheelhouse. Can I get something else? I'm not really feeling that today. Can we have something else? They just did what they were told and they didn't say anything about it because they had been purchased. They belonged to someone else. They were property and you say, well, that sounds like a terrible way to live. It would have been terrible to be a bond slave of someone else, but Paul considered it an honor and a privilege to become a bond slave of Jesus. Of all the credentials that Paul could have listed here, do you know what he said? My greatest accomplishment is that I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That's how I want to be known. That's what I want put on my name badge. I don't store manager, regional manager, general manager. I want slave of Jesus on my name tag. And you know what? That brought so much joy in Paul. Because you see, if Paul got fired up about being the guy behind the pulpit, being able to give the message on a Sunday morning, if Paul was the guy who would gather people together for Bible studies and spend time in prayer, do that from prison. And who have been discouraged. I used to be somebody out there. Now I'm nobody. I used to be able to preach before big crowds, and now I'm a nobody. I one time preached in a city, and persecution came, and a bunch of us got in a basket, and we ended up being let down out of the second story in a basket so we could run for cover. I used to be the guy that was singing in prison late at night. I was the guy that led the, the jailer to Christ, and his whole family got saved. I'm Paul, but now I can't do that anymore. What was me? No, he didn't say that. He says, I'm a servant. And you know what? This servant got put in jail. And you know where this servant's supposed to be? In jail. And I got no problem with that because this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Because Paul didn't have a job title he had assigned to himself. Paul didn't have something he felt like he had to do, otherwise he was worthless. He just wanted to do whatever Jesus told him to do because he was a slave. He just did what he was told. You see, slave denotes the fact that you would have a master he knew who his master was, Jesus Christ. Paul and Timotheus, servants or bond slaves of Jesus Christ. You see, the term Lord literally means master. It means you're the boss. You call the shots. You say what it is, we follow. Without question, 100% of the time, because you're master, you're Lord. That's why in the, the book of Luke, when Jesus was talking to a group of people, they said, Lord. And he goes, whoa, whoa hold on for just a second. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? <laughs> I don't think that word means what you think it means. Because if I'm Lord, I should be the master. But I'm not. Paul recognized Jesus is master. He is Lord. And again, again and again throughout this study of, or this letter of, to the church at Philippi, he uses the term Lord Jesus Christ because he knows he's the boss. You and I will never find fulfillment in life when we feel like we've got to measure up to some standard that somebody else sets for us. One of the reasons why I absolutely hate social media because there's this standard that you must meet and if you don't, you're less of a person. 
<laughs> there's a clothing store that went out of uh, business over at Alamoana, and we got some of the fixtures from the store, and there was a, a lady's mannequin, uh, where, like where we put dresses on and put in a window and stuff like that. It was just the, the torso portion of it. And my daughter, Makili, she's super creative and stuff like that, and she uh, wanted that to put in her room. She put stuff on it and dressed it up and put a hat and a scarf around it, you know, girl stuff. I don't know anything about it, but my wife tells me that's how you do it. But Makili had this dress that she had worn to church, and she really liked it, and so she put it on the mannequin, and it fit perfectly. And my wife says, that's cute for Makili, but it's sick for women. And I go, why? Oblivious to this. Because society tells you that the size of a normal woman is the size of an 11-year-old girl. (sighs) That's terrifying. And immediately I was just like, oh, no. I've got girls, and I've got to teach them that this is not normal. But I have to go against society to be able to do that. Oh, my soul. So we can't allow society to set the bar as far as what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. I can't allow society to set the bar what I should do and what I shouldn't do. You can't let your workplace say what you should be and what you shouldn't be. You can't allow the careers or the expectations of others to set the, the bar for you. No, Jesus sets the bar. I'm just a servant. I'll be really, really transparent with you this morning. If you had given me 10 years ago, list the top 25 professions you'd like to have, pastor wouldn't have broken my top 250, much less my top 25. It's not my thing. I don't enjoy public speaking at all. It terrifies me. <laughs> No, that can't be true. True. Whenever I get nervous, public speaking, I do two things. I talk really fast, and I sweat. You say, well, Pastor, you always talk fast, because I'm always nervous, honestly. I'm sweating like a sinner in church this morning, Uh, with good reason, because I'm a sinner in church. Uh, But again, there came a point in my life where it's not about me. It's not about what I want, what I think would be fun, what I'd like to chase after, what idea of success I see in my mind. What would God have me to do? And God says, I want you to reach a city with the gospel. And here it is on the map. Honestly, I love Honolulu. This is my home. I hope to live and die here. I've already told my wife when I die, I want to be cremated and put my ashes here. She knows where it is. This is home for me. I grew up in Kentucky, but that's not home. This is my home. But legit, top 25 places in the world you want to live, this, this wouldn't have cracked my top 100. I love it. It's a beautiful place. This, I don't know anybody here. I'm not from here. It's hard for me and my kids to grow up here. It's just not top 25, but it is number one. You know why? Because this is where God wants me to be. Nowhere in the world I'd rather be. I was telling our men, this is a, the, the work that I do. If you want to call it a job, my vocation, dream job. Like if the church couldn't afford to pay me a salary, I'd, pay, I'd deliver pizzas at night so I could do this during the day because I love what I do because I'm exactly where God wants me to be. I'm just a servant. I just do what God tells me to do. I don't own anything. Everything I have was given to me by God, and that brings joy. The fact that the car that I drive was given to me by God, not because of how good I am. My family, gift from God. That brings me joy. The ability to worship Jesus with you guys and to to serve Jesus with you guys and to push the gospel further with you guys. Joy, man, joy. What a delight. But it's found first and foremost in finding who I am in Jesus. And, and friend, I love you enough to tell you today, if you feel like that 
next relationship or that next job or that next you know degree or those numbers behind your name or the title in front of your name is going to bring you happiness please let me save you the trouble and say just be who you are in Jesus that fixes everything again as we work down through these first two verses here we find also that joy is multiplied with others It's interesting, before Paul got saved, he was known of as Saul. The Bible tells us in the early book of Acts that he was consenting unto the death of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church, standing there basically holding everybody's jackets while they stoned him to death with a nod of approval. Yeah, this is how it's done. Hater of the church. We find him on the road to Damascus. He's going to actually persecute more Christians, and we don't know who he was traveling with because the Bible doesn't really tell us. But there he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, God tasks another man with going and talking to Paul. And um, the man doesn't want to go talk to Paul because he knows that Paul's a hater of Christians. And that man basically goes to Paul and puts his hand on him and calls him Brother Saul. Hey, you're one of us now. The first time Paul actually goes and talks to the remaining apostles, they're freaked out because here's this guy that's been trying to kill us. What's he doing here? Who brought him here? Is this a setup? And Barnabas says, no, he's with me. And he vouches for him. This is Paul, you can receive him, and he's good. He's with me, and he's one of us now. And from that point forward, you never see Paul alone, ever. He's always got people with him. Throughout the book of Acts, he's traveling with guys like Paul, or with guys like Barnabas, with John Mark, with guys like Silas, with Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote the book of Acts for us, a medical doctor that was traveling with him, was traveling with him in these journeys. When you see Paul write these letters, he's like, hey, everybody here says hey, and he always lists a group of guys that are with him. He never traveled alone, you know, because Paul knew that joy was multiplied with others. He's in jail. Who does he say is with him? Timothy. Timothy hadn't done nothing wrong. Timothy wasn't under arrest, but he was there with Paul because Paul knew it was important to have other guys with him. Paul knew that putting his faith and trust in others and being vulnerable and transparent with them would also set him up for failure, but he did it anyways. Paul would sometimes close out his letters saying, hey, Demas, you guys know Demas, he used to walk with us. He left. He loves this world too much. He's not with us anymore. I don't know if you guys remember Alexander the coppersmith. Yeah, he did me like mega wrong, mega wrong. But you know what? I'm not sweating that. I'm gonna let God handle that. Paul knew that by allowing him to open himself up towards other people, he would get hurt, but he also knew that it was the only way to multiply his joy. That's it. And so I talked to our guys over the last three days about, guys, we've got to do this together because we need each other. And we're going to do that over the next several weeks to walk through life together as Christian men. If you weren't at the men's conference, you're still welcome to join us as we do this. But joy is always multiplied with other people as he writes to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, verse number one. The word saints means the holy set apart ones. Now, unfortunately, the term saint gets a bad rap due to false religion. The word saint literally means the holy ones or the righteous ones, the set apart ones. 
And that's a term that denotes every single Christian. It's funny, remember I told you how the church at Corinth was one of the most carnal churches. As he writes to them, he writes to the brethren and the saints at Corinth. So these aren't special, unique, super-duper Christians. These aren't people who have a special place in, in church history. These are just average, ordinary, ordinary, everyday Christians. But again, the, the Greek word that's used here for the word saints is the word hagios, which means the holy ones. The root word of that word hagios is where we get our word holy. And so it says something special about us as Christians. We're supposed to be the holy ones. Again, the word holy sometimes gets a bad rap, but it just means those that are separate or set apart from sin. <laughs> so get this. This is how awesome God is. The word church in the Bible, or the word ecclesia, means a called out assembly. We were part of this group over here called the world, and God picked us up, took us out of it, and set us apart over here, separate from the world, the church. And the word saints, or Hagias means the set-apart ones, the people who make up the church that have been set apart by God for a specific purpose. Those are the saints. Who is that? That's you and I that know Jesus Christ as Savior. These are the saved ones, the saints. And so, you probably said before, well, I go to church, but I'm not a saint. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Well, I don't live like a saint. Then start living like a saint. How about that, Right? Start living a right life. Follow the Bible. Follow God's guidelines. Live a holy, righteous life. Now, again, to, to add further confusion to it, you know, you have the, the Catholic Church who says, you know, to be a saint, first of all, you have to die to be a saint. Secondly, you have, they do an inquiry of your life to determine if you lived a life of a certain type of virtue. There has to be two identifiable miracles that are attributed to your life or something supernatural took place at your hand or at your command. And then after all this study and multiple years have passed, then at the Vatican, the Pope will commemorate a ceremony where they canonize you and make you a saint. And you become Saint Anthony, the patron saint of slightly overweight dads in their 40s, right? I don't know. Um, and so that's how sainthood is. But the Bible says that saints are just Christians. How do you become a saint? You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. You're born again. Boom, you're a saint. Now, I'm thankful that we don't call each other saint. Oh, we've got St. John and St. Dante and St. Jacob and St. Anthony. No, we're not going to do that. You know why? Because our holiness and righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. It's not about me. But I seek to live a holy, righteous life before God. And so he writes to the saints at Philippi. Sometimes people are confused, like, ooh, who were the saints at Philippi? They were just regular dudes like us and dudettes like us, right? Regular, average, ordinary Christians. They, had, they were jobs. They had problems in their family. Their kids disobeyed, you know? There's regular folks, saints at Philippi. As you also, we also never find a single instance in the Bible where saints are revered or prayed to. This is important to understand. I had lunch with a, a man probably three years or so ago. Began, I was trying to share the gospel, and he's a Catholic, and he knew his stuff, and um, you know, he'd gone to Catholic school growing up and uh, had been the altar boy in, in church and had gone to a Catholic university. This guy knew his stuff, and we were talking, and I said, I said, talk to me about the whole, like, praying to saints and praying to Mary. He goes, oh, we don't pray to them. We pray with them. And I go, explain that to me. And he said, well, it's like, you know, like, if you and I decided to pray for somebody who's in the hospital, it's like that, like praying with the saints. Well, that makes sense, but they're dead. Oh, I know, that's the great part about it. 
What is it great that dead people are praying for you? He goes, well, they're closer to God than we are because they're in heaven. That rationally makes sense, but biblically that makes no sense whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Well, explain to me the whole thing about praying to Mary. Well, think about it this way. If I kept trying to call you on the phone and I couldn't get a hold of you, maybe I could call your mom and your mom could... No, stop. No, 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 stop. You're not really saying that, like, Jesus don't hear us and we got to get his mom involved? Well, it's not like that. Well, explain to me what it is like because I don't get that at all. I mean, you're, he said, you're talking about the mother of God. Ah, stop. That title's not found in Scripture anywhere. She's the mother of the church. Ah, I'm going to stop you right there. Hard stop. The church belongs to Jesus, purchased by his own blood, has nothing whatsoever to do with Mary at all. And he was just like, well, you know, she has a special access to Jesus so that our prayers can get further. Oh, the Bible says we have one mediator between us and God, and that is Jesus Christ that my prayers only make it to God because of Jesus himself. Nobody else is involved in any of that. So we never find anywhere in the Bible. Sometimes, you know, newer Christians will read this, and they go, well, the saints at Philippi, who are those people? You know, what was special about them? There's nothing special about them other than they were saved individuals. That's it. And they don't have any access to God that we don't. As a pastor, I don't have access to God that you don't. The Bible says that if you're a child of God, you're saved, you have direct access to God on your own. You need a pastor to give you guidance and shepherding in life, but at the end of the day, you got as much access to God as I do, and your prayers can be just as powerful as mine. Simple as that. Also, as he writes, he also writes to the church leadership of the church at Philippi. There's really two biblical offices of church governance that we find in Scripture. Again, anything outside of these two offices, we would say would be extra biblical because we only find two uh, areas of leadership in the church. First of all is the office of the pastor, the word pastor can be used interchangeably throughout Scripture with the titles bishop and elder. Uh, for us as, as uh, Bible-believing Christians, we prefer the term uh, pastor. Uh, the terms bishop and elder have been kind of hijacked by false religions. When you think of bishops and archbishops, which again, archbishops is not a Bible thing, you tend to think of the structure of the Catholic Church and a hierarchy that takes place there. So for to, lack, to make sure we don't have confusion, we don't use the term bishop that often, although we could because it's a biblical term. Typically, when most people think of the term elder, they think of the, the boys in white T-shirts and ties that ride their bicycles through your neighborhood with the little name tags on there. They say, Elder Joey, you know, who's 16. Bro, look up the term elder and what it means. A 17-year-old boy on a bicycle doesn't fit that qualification, but it's a story for another day. Uh, but, and so some confusion there. Now, I know Bible-believing Christians who use the term elder, and I got no problem with that. Again, it's a biblical term. I know Bible-believing Christians who use the term bishop. I got no problem with that. It's a Bible term. This is a preference issue where good Christians can just uh, disagree on things and still be okay. And so it's not a hard and fast rule. We just prefer the term pastor. But they all three mean the same thing. There's three Greek words that are used in Scripture for the office of the pastor, episkopos, presbyteros, and the word poimen. Episcopos generally talks about a guardian or an overseer, whereas a presbyteros is one who supervises, whereas the term poimen really means more of a shepherd. And so the job of the pastor is never to be the authority of the church. He only provides leadership and guidance. And he's always, every single time, subject to Jesus Christ and God's word 100% of the time. 100% of the time. And at what point the pastor is not subject to those, he's no longer fit to pastor, period, end of story. So the church doesn't belong to the pastor. The pastor is not the boss. The pastor is not the master. Jesus Christ is. And even the term 
uh, shepherd that's used in the Greek word poimen that's used to describe the office of the pastor, we would even defer further and say that it's really not a shepherd, it's more of an under-shepherd because the chief shepherd of the church is Jesus Christ. But as a shepherd, again, shepherds don't rule with an iron fist. They just kind of guide and like, hey, fellas, get back over here. Hey, you can't go over there. You got to come back over here. It's my job as a pastor to lead you in the paths of spiritual fruitfulness. Then when I see you going outside the boundaries that God has set, I said, hey, come back over here. We're going to stay over here. And let me put you with other people who will help you stay in the right place. It's a job of a pastor. And again, not a job that I would have picked for myself, but I believe that God led me into this position. And I love giving people guidance from God's word and helping to shepherd them into greater spiritual fruitfulness. Outside of being a husband and a father, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. The role of the deacon also is the uh, biblical role. And again, depending on what type of church you grew up in, you might either have a positive or negative connotation of deacons. The biblical view is incredibly positive. It's not the job or the role of the deacons to run the church, as some uh, churches unfortunately do. I was a part of a church one time where the, pastor, the, uh, the deacons said it was their job to keep the pastor humble and to make sure he didn't get out of line. <laughs> They're not like the secret police where they get to tell the pastor what to do and things like that. The word deacon literally means personal servant. If you read through the book of Acts, and again, if you've never read it through, you gotta read through it. The pastors of the church were overwhelmed with the administrative nature of the church, and they were trying to, to pray for people and guide them into spiritual fruitfulness and begin to uh, preach God's word and share the gospel and really put together plans to make the gospel go further. And the Bible says that they were caught up in taking care of widows and their needs and providing meals for people and making sure that the meals got cleaned up or picked up or uh, distributed appropriately. And the Bible says, let's find men of an honest report that can do those types of things to allow the pastoral leadership to focus on spiritual matters. And so the word deacon or diakonos as it's found in the Greek literally means a personal servant. And so any deacon who thinks he's more than just a waiter at a table to help has misunderstood the office of the deacon. It's just not what it's about. Any pastor who thinks he's the boss of the church and gets to call the shots for the church has grossly misunderstood the office of the pastor and what that's about. These are two healthy offices that are meant uh, to govern the church. Uh, last year, we uh, had selected our first two deacons of our church, uh, John Stoker uh, and Joey Hen. Joey Hen got transferred to Germany. We'll probably be uh, nominating and adopting another deacon within the next six to nine months. Uh, but it's one of those things that there are certain qualifications for that. Not just anybody can do it. Just like nobody can, just not anybody can be a pastor. It has nothing to do with gifting or is this guy a sharp guy or anything like that. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to take a note, you want to jot these down, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the qualifications of a pastor and the qualifications of a deacon, they're heavy, big time. And there's good men in our church that love Jesus like there's no tomorrow who have my back in any given situation who would take a bullet for this church, but they're not biblically qualified to be deacons, and so they're glad just to be faithful, godly, serving men of our church, and I call on them for 101 other things. But the office of the deacon and the pastor are really important to God, and he gives qualifications for those. So as he writes to the bishops and deacons at the church, he's basically writing not only to the, the flock itself, but church leadership. So this is just kind of the introduction, but here's the big takeaway from today's message. First of all, seek joy above everything else. This requires intentionality on your part. Joy just doesn't show up. 
discontentment just shows up. Discouragement just shows up. Comparison just shows up. Self-hatred just shows up. Discouragement, depression just shows up. We have to go looking for joy. But here's the great news. It's found really easily because it's found in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and God's word. So it's not like we gotta like, oh, great, I gotta get some joy. I don't know where to get it from though. Like maybe I'll call, you know, Aunt Becky and see if she knows where joy can, can pick up some joy this afternoon. No, you have to go after it though. It's important to understand too that joy is greater than happiness. Joy doesn't have an expiration date. I got saved when I was a nine-year-old boy. I get joy every single day from that moment. That changed my life. I passed from darkness into life. I was once an enemy of God. Now I'm a child of God. I was adopted into the family of God. I'm now seated at God's table. God wants to bless me and give me good things in life. He's given me his Holy Spirit. I have the promises of his word at my disposal. I'm part of a new family of people who are going the same direction I am, that value the same things that I, I value, that honor the same God that I honor, that I get to glorify God in my life. Holy cow. I got all that just from being a child of God? Oh, that and like 10 million times more. And so joy is greater than happiness because happiness has an expiration date and joy doesn't. Next, joy is found in Jesus. And again, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know joy. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know love. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know peace. Because Jesus is all of those things and I find my joy in him. Please understand that if you're a child of God, there's nothing you can ever do to lose your salvation. Praise God for that. That you can never outsin the grace of God. Yeah, Pastor, are you saying that once you're saved, you're always saved? That's precisely what God's word promises us. Again, if you have everlasting life, how long is that good for? Everlasting. If I'm given the gift of eternal life, how long is that good for? It's good for eternity. It's not good until the next time I sin or the next time I fall off the boat or the next time I trip and fall. No, it's good for eternity. And so know this. There's nothing in the world that the devil could ever do to steal your eternal life. Praise God for that. But the devil can steal your joy. And that you've got to fight against. Oh, man, I'm never going to see hell because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Guaranteed. No doubt. But I can lose my joy like that if I begin to focus on the wrong things. And while my eternal life is secure, my earthly life can be crushed and miserable by the work of Satan in my life. So you know what I gotta do? Keep my eyes on Jesus. Just gotta continue to focus on him. Everything around me can be falling apart. I'm just gonna keep my eyes on Jesus. Hey, I can't go to the restaurants that I wanted to. I can't order the things that I wanted to. It takes two weeks to get my packages from Amazon. Life is so hard. People around me are losing their jobs. People around me are quitting on Jesus. I just gotta stay focused on Jesus. I have to wear a mask everywhere I go. I'm inconvenienced in my life. I just gotta focus on Jesus. I can't travel in your island anymore without a 14-day quarantine. I'm just gonna keep my eyes on Jesus. And when somebody says, aren't things so terrible? No, actually they're not. <laughs> Truthfully, I'm doing a lot better than I deserve, for sure. I know, and so here's the thing. People will bait you into griping and complaining. You know what that is? It's a trick to steal your joy. How are things going? Things are great. I'm blessed. Don't you hate wearing a mask everywhere? I do, but it's, even if I don't believe that this is real, I'm not saying that I do. 
I'm not saying that I don't. That wasn't a political statement. <laughs> even if I'm saying, even if I didn't think this was real, I would still wear a mask because I want to be a good neighbor and I want to love my neighbor. And I think this is a golden opportunity for Christians to be able to show how great God is in the midst of this time. So no, things are really well with me. I know, but what about this? Hey, things are good. People will try to bait you into an argument and bait you into griping with them. You know why? Because misery loves miserable company. It's been said before, misery loves company. No, it doesn't. It loves miserable company. Don't be miserable. Have joy. Lays are being focused on Jesus. Next, joy comes from the Holy Spirit. If you're walking in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, but let me just tell you this, you're caught up in nine kinds of sin, your joy is gonna get zapped with the quickness. Because sinfulness and joy cannot coexist because joy comes from the Holy Spirit and sin comes from our carnality and our flesh and they can't stay together. So be careful, protect your joy. And lastly, joy is a choice. You get to choose joy. Get a diagnosis that you didn't want from the doctor. You got a couple of choices on how you can respond to that. You can respond with sadness and discouragement and disappointment and being down on the dumps and throw yourself a pity party and invite other people to join it. Or you can say, hey, I trust God. Hey, better than I deserve. Here's the fact of the matter. If I walk out in the street today and get hit by a bus, just know this, I lived a lot longer than I was supposed to live. I did far more in my life than I was supposed to accomplish. I've done more things, accomplished more in the short time that God gave me on, my life, on this earth than I ever was supposed to. So when I'm dead and gone, first of all, don't sit around and feel sorry for me because I'm with Jesus and I've got joy like I've never had before. But secondly, know this, I died with a full heart knowing for sure that I'd done everything that God had called me to do and you can live with that same assurance. And again, if I'm dead and gone, my wife and children will grieve, but they'll eventually have joy knowing for sure that I'm in heaven and they'll all be together again someday. So, how's your joy? If you're to give yourself a scale on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being my joy is exploding at the seams. And if I had any more, I can't imagine how I would contain it. To a one of, I'm empty. I'm like broke down on the side of the freeway, totally out of joy. And I, it's 50 the next joy station. And I got to walk it. Where are you out of that? Don't settle for average. Don't be like, oh, I think I got a quarter tank of joy that might last me a little ways. No, no, no. I don't have time to preach this. I wish I did. Write this down. John chapter 15. Jesus is talking about abiding Christ. You know, abide in Christ and abide in me and I in you. The same should bring forth much fruit. You remember that? If you don't, you need to look it up and read it. Here's what he says. Abide in me that I would give you my joy that your joy may be full. <laughs> that joy comes from abiding in Christ. The word abide means to live with. If you come over to have dinner at my house and then you leave, that's not abiding. That's coming for a visit. But if you show up at my house with a backpack on your back and I say, what are you doing? You go, I'm moving in. For how long? Forever. That's abiding. 
Sometimes we visit with Jesus, but we don't abide with him. Here's what he says, if you abide with me and I with you, you'll bring forth much fruit, and I'm gonna give you my joy. We get the joy from Jesus, the direct source of it, and he's gonna give it to us so that our joy will be full. Where does it come? It comes from abiding in Christ. Oh, man, no time to preach it this morning. Gotta preach it to yourself this week, all right? It's good. But here's the thing, you gotta choose joy. If you allow the media and your social media feed, feed to dictate how you feel this week, you're toast. You're trash. It's over before it starts. If you allow your workplace to dictate how you feel this week, mm, it's a 50-50 shot. But if you allow the Holy Spirit, God's Word, Jesus to dictate how you feel this week, Joy unspeakable. But, but things aren't right in my life right now. Oh, I know. That's the purpose of joy. Joy works when everything's falling apart. Joy works when the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Joy works when everything that you have has go, is working actively against you. That's where joy shines. You don't need joy when all your bills are paid, you get extra money at the end of the month, and, and life is good. You need joy when you have nowhere else to turn. That's when joy really begins to be of value to you. You've been around people before who have joy, right? They're a blast to be around. That even bad situations get turned into something positive. That even terrible people get turned into something really good. They're a blast to be around. Be that person this week. And here's the thing. Joy's contagious. Joy's contagious. Share it with others this week. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you do not know for sure that you're saved, you, you don't have joy, and you'll never have it until you have Jesus. So if you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior, never been a time in your life where you've been born again, let today be that day so that you can begin your journey of joy with Jesus as like nothing you've ever been on. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.